0: This is the Mount Carmel Christian Church Podcast. Today, Senior Minister Didi Bacon will be teaching the message.
1: So, Shannon and I have been married uh, 27 years. It's been like, boop, real quick. And uh, Amazing. Get into routines, as uh, a couple, right? In my routine in the morning when I get ready for everything, I like to go to the sink, I like to wash my face, I like to wet my hair. I have to wet my hair because i got like five cowlicks. And it's not necessarily a hair-wetting thing, it's more of a taming thing. And I have to tame it down and, and really work them because apparently I'm not acceptable to leave the house with my hair all crazy, according to some people I know whose name is Shannon. Um, LAUGHTER so, you know, it's brush teeth, wash face, glue hair, and all of that. I'm just a go-getter kind of guy. I know that may be sound surprising to you. <gasps> really? Um, but it, it really is. And, and so in that, no doubt, there's always water everywhere on the sink and water everywhere uh, where I've been. And typically I do it and I go on. It's, it's not mud. It's not paint. It's water. So it dries and all that. But um, my wife has asked me repeatedly, not to walk away from the sink when it's covered in water. Uh, she's asked me repeatedly, and we've had conversations about that. Um, I may or may not have rolled my eyes. I mean, that may or may not have happened. But we have these conversations. And Shannon, she, she's she's awesome. So she has a setup. If you look, this is a, this is the, my sink in my bathroom and by the shower. Take this picture here. See, so you see right that up there on the top, up high. Someone said it's high like that. My problem is that I'm vertically challenged. That is a cloth that I'm supposed to use that she provided me to clean the sink before I did. Isn't that nice of her? She's a nice wife. But, you know, what happens, right? Uh, I don't see the cloth. It's too high for me anyway. No, um, I don't do it. And when I don't do it, then there's a return uh, communication from her. And she lets me know that she's not happy for the state of the sink. I told you, I asked you, please dry the sink. I even put up the cloth for you to be able to clean it out so you can leave it in that. And, and when, I'm, when I'm typically, you know, I remember, uh, you know, my first reaction My first reaction, it depends on how much coffee you've had. If I have a few more cups than I should, then, then it's a little more of a conversation. But most of the times I, I take a deep breath and remember I'm a Christian and, uh, and I, have to, uh, I have to own up to my sins, right? Uh, I, I apologize to my wife. I say, you're right. I'm sorry. I'm going to do better. I promise. And, and, and I make that commitment to, to do better. And the reason I do that is because I love my wife. I made that commitment to honor her. While I may not think it's a big deal, it's a big deal to her. It's a big deal to her. And when I don't do that, she rightly points out how I am ignoring her, treating her disrespectfully in one way. Uh, I'm making her feel like she doesn't matter to me. And that's not good. Thank you, Josh. (laughs) That's not good. Why? Because in marriage, we've made this commitment to love one another, to honor one another, to, to bless one another, to help one another in life. I am violating my promise when I do that. And she rightfully has uh, to right to call me on the carpet and to point that out because I'm, not, I'm ignoring her. I'm hurting her feelings. Now, in marriage, this is, this is how it is. And uh, typically that happens with small things, right? Pick up your, not picking up your socks, uh, where you squeeze the toothpaste, water on how the uh, pillow is supposed to look. How the pillow is supposed to... Yeah, you're supposed to have all the corners, right? And the opening is always supposed to be on the outside, apparently. Uh, I just learned this uh, a while ago. How many of you ladies are like, of course? Yeah, Yeah, you always band together. You always band together. (laughs) When we were first married, Shannon had this duvet she bought, and it was a beautiful duvet, and it cost a little money, and I'm like, she used to fold it up every day. And I'm like, why'd you fold up the duvet? She says, well, it's just for decorative. I'm like, what? That's a blanket. It keeps us warm. Why are we doing that? So apparently I have oils that I mess the duvet on or something gross like that. But anyway, <laughs> yikes. But we've sorted that conversation out. That's marriage. That's marriage, right? Now, we have things that are somewhat mundane and everyday and light. And then, of course, in the course of marriage, we can get some more serious stuff when we get to some serious disrespect and dishonoring and abuse. Uh, now we're talking dealing with, with things that are heavy and heartfelt and life-changing and destructive. You know, I want you to think about that emotion of being hurt when a loved one fails to honor you when you've asked them specifically for something. I want you to hold on to that, that memory because I think we've all had that, feeling of betrayal, feeling of hurt, feeling of, oh wow, Uh, you say you love me, but what's going on with this? And I want you to think of it now in that feeling of, of your relationship with God, your relationship with God. We in church, Christian church, we talk about our relationship with God and we say things like, it's relationship, not religion. It's not going through the motions, but it's actually a relationship, a connection, walking with God in life. And we sing songs, I Will Rise, and we're moved at our time of communion because we're so thankful for what what God has given. He sent His Son into the world. That whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And we hold on to that and we say, oh, I'm so thankful for what God has provided for me. He, he's forgiven me of my sins. He's blessed me in my life. He's available to me when I pray. He's going to bring me from, from, life, from death to life. There's so much that I'm so thankful and, and acknowledge that God gives to me because of Jesus. And we thank God for that, and and we're really appreciative of what He does, but then sometimes we don't think of the other side of the equation. In that when we enter into a relationship with God, Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross and follow me. We have to lay down our life in order to receive the life that God gives to us. And laying down our life, well, that's when it starts getting tricky because now God begins to mess with my stuff, right? Now God begins to mess with my preferences. God begins to mess with the way I see the world. God begins to mess with some of the relationships I might be having. God begins to mess with the things that that I want Want total control of my money. And I wonder that when we live in this relationship with God, we're made right with God through faith. I wonder how it works. I wonder how he feels. I came across a story that I think captures maybe into an extreme, but it's an extreme to make a point of how we treat God sometimes. How we treat God. How many of you remember Paul Harvey? Good day. Paul Harvey was a radio commentator. Kids that are never heard of him before. Paul Harvey was a radio commentator uh, that used to be on radio. Uh, you used listen. You didn't watch it on a little device. But anyway, he was on a radio, and he used to do a number of segments and a lot of, tell a lot of stories. One of his is, now for the rest of the story, right? You remember that? And, and doing that. Paul Harvey tells a story, uh, a real-life story, at one, one, one Thanksgiving time. We're getting close to that. Thanksgiving time that the rep, a customer service rep at the Butterball uh, Turkey Company, received a phone call from a woman asking the question, Uh, regarding a 23-year-old frozen turkey that she had dug out of her freezer. So the question was, she said, I've had this turkey at the bottom of my freezer now for 23 years. Is it still good to eat? So the, 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 the lady said, um, well, um, if it stayed below zero that entire 23 years, it's probably okay to eat once you thaw it out and all that. But I wouldn't recommend it because the, the flavor and the taste, the quality, is going to be awful. It's going to be awful. To which the woman said this, well, that's what I thought. It's okay. I will give it to our church. I will give it to our church. Now, it's funny, but it's not funny. It's not funny. Why? Because what does that say about that lady's value of the work and ministry of her church? The turkey is not good enough for my table, but it's okay for the church. What does it say about what she believes about the God of her church? about her Lord, her leader, and her forgiver, Jesus. What does that say? Jesus, you can have a frozen 23-year-old turkey, but I'm not going to eat that. That's yuck, disgusting, but it's okay for you. I wonder what God feels about that. I wonder what God thinks about that. I wonder how God receives That attitude from us. And it may not be a frozen 23-year-old turkey, but it may be a nonchalance to his word and ignoring to his direct commandments. It may be a lack of prioritization of honoring him in our life. Well, the good thing is is we have the Bible, and in the Bible this issue is addressed, and its issue is directly addressed in the last book of the Old Testament, a prophet named Malachi. And in Malachi, the word Malachi means messenger. So Malachi's name was his calling. He was a messenger from God. And his message was to the people of God of his time to communicate to them, and you get the emotion when you read Malachi, of God's thoughts and feelings regarding their treating of God, how they saw God, how they, if you'd like, how they were wearing God in their life. Malachi writes to the people, the Jews, the people of Judah, once they've returned, in a period in their history, once they've returned from Babylon, they've been in captivity. They're in captivity because they are being punished because of their idolatry. They failed. In fulfilling their side of the agreement that they made with God, God said, I will bless you, but you live for me, you live by my will and by my word. They failed to live by his will and by his word, and after repeated warnings over and over and over, when he shared with them his displeasure on how they were treating him, he got their attention by sending in the Babylonians who invaded that country and dragged them all off into captivity. At that time, they were dragged off, and they were told, this is what's going to happen, and God is going to be true to His promises, true to His purposes. He will bring back a remnant of people, and they will come and resettle the land, and in that remnant will come the hope of the world. And I'm referring to Jesus. From that remnant, the resettling of the land, will come the ho- hope of the world, who reestablish the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God that will reach all peoples. And make available to, to all people the ability to know God so that he can be their God. And he can walk with them and live with them as they follow his will and his way. And so the people returned from, from captivity. They settled the land of Judah. Their optimism was high. They rebuilt best they could the, the the temple, so that they could worship God as they were called to do it. They were trying to resettle the land. They were trying to make themselves the nation that God called to them, and all of a sudden, they faced difficulty. It wasn't turning out the way they, they thought it would needed to turn out. They started to, to not have the blessing that they thought they were to going to get. They, they were facing difficulty. They were vulnerable. Their neighbors were picking on them all the time, and they were in a bad situation. And in their bad situation, you get the sense that they lost hope. They figured, huh... Oh, God's not doing what, he's, what, he, what we think he needs to do and the time we need he thinks to do it, so forget him. And they began to live in a way that dishonored God. They continued to try to practice their faith, but their faith was half-hearted, half-hearted cheap. It was giving a lot of frozen 23-year-old turkeys. And so Malachi, on behalf of God, calls them out. He first addresses the the religious leaders, the church leaders, and he says, you guys know better. One big thing I have a problem with you is this. You are allowing the people, encouraging the people to bring sacrifice to me that are second rate. Instead of giving the first fruits, the best as we had agreed, as the law had commanded, now you're giving us the second rate. In fact, you're not giving us even the second fruit, you're giving me the last fruit and so he calls them out. Listen, listen to the text. We're going to read this together. We're going to read this together. Malachi chapter 1. Of course, it's a series of questions. It's a series of uh, God bringing up something, and, and there's a rhetorical answer that, that comes from Malachi, but this is, this is God making his point. So he's basically said, you guys have, have, are, are not being blessed because of what you've been doing. And he says, by offering defiled food on my altar... But you ask, this is he's speaking on behalf of the people, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, isn't that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? What is he saying? He's saying, you guys are offering blind animals, second-rate animals, when you know clearly you're to offer to God a sacrifice of your best. Your own governor, your own rulers, you wouldn't even give this to your own family, but you're quite comfortable giving it to God. He also points out that they're dishonoring him in their marriages. These Jews returned from captivity, decided, eh, my jewish wife kinda of getting old i like the look of these new younger chicks maybe they say chicks ladies that are pagan non-jews so we're gonna divorce the wife of my youth in order to upgrade the model to these newer ladies that are available that's what they were doing god called them out this is where it says in scripture where god says i hate divorce why does he hate divorce two things one in this context he hates divorce for the destruction he was creating in the lives of families, and the vulnerability that was putting these, these widows who were being divorced, these women that were being divorced, in effect being widows, making them vulnerable and, and open to, to abuse and, and shame and all that. And secondly, then, they were directly violating a commandment that said, don't intermarry with people of other faiths. Why? Because it will dilute your faith. It was what led them into the problem in the first place, why they got taken off to Babylon. That's why God says, I hate divorce and the way you're doing it. And then the third thing he gets them on is money. You know, throughout this whole series, we've been saying this. Your money will indicate what you value. That's the word treasure. And what you value, the records of what you value will indicate what you worship. Your checkbook will say more about your faith commitment than anything else. That's the truth of Scripture. That's the truth of Scripture, and it's the truth of our lives. And Malachi points out that the Israelites were dishonoring God by not fulfilling the agreement to manage their money, to honor God, the owner, and them, the, the managers, to honor God in the practice of tithing, in the practice of bringing to God God what they had agreed they would bring when they became the people of God. And so follow along with me as I read chapter 3, verse 7. This is what he lays out. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how are we robbing you? in tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough for to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines of your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. It's important when you approach Scripture that you approach it in a a way that sets the context of the communication so that you might glean the truth, and the truth then, that truth then may be applied to your life. And so when I read a passage of Scripture, here's a series of questions that I ask, because it's very important to try to un- understand that Scripture was written at a certain time, at a certain place, in a certain way, to a certain people, to a certain circumstance. And it's important to understand all of these things. And so a number of questions I ask. Who is writing? Well, Malachi. Who's he writing on behalf? He's writing on behalf of God. Who's he writing to? Well, he's writing to the people of Judah who have returned from captivity. How do I know this? Well, I can get a basic Bible handbook, and it'll tell me that basic history. When was this written? Well, history tells me that it was written at a time in which uh, this was the last prophet of of Israel, at a time when the people are resettling the land. This is the time historically of Ezra and Nehemiah. The whole story of people getting back into the land from from being in Babylon. They're reestablishing themselves. Why was this written? Well, it was written because they were not fulfilling their end of the bargain. It was written so that the people could be called to task regarding their behavior in dishonoring God. And this is really important then. How would the folks who first received this message understood it? And when you get that, When you get that, then you come to the place where you recognize a number of things. First of all, you recognize that God is angry. God is angry and upset, not because He's vengeful and vindictive. No, God is angry because He's hurt. Just as my wife has the right to be hurt when I ignore her and I, I walk roughshod over her feelings and her desires, God is hurt because he has entered into relationship with these people, giving to them what, what, what he promised, yet they are failing on a repeated basis, on a repeated basis to fulfill what they were called to do. God was angry because his people were disrespecting him, they were dishonoring him, they were calling into question his promises. As things weren't happening in their own time, so they're like, oh, God's not there. His power, they were saying, God can't do this, what He said, and His purposes. They weren't willing to trust Him and align their lives to His purposes. And all of this, this then comes down and lands into the question of money. When it came to money, to, to the practice of money, this is what they were communicating. And so now we, we, we bring this truth and we add it. Okay, how am I... How am I, as a Jesus follower, I'm talking to myself, what is the testimony of my financials when it comes to my love for God and love for people? What does my money say about my faith? What does my money say about what I believe about God? What does my checkbook entries tell about the things that that I value? And if I say praise the Lord and I sing the songs and I get teary-eyed because of God's grace, well, how does that translate in my day-to-day interactions, buying and spending and saving and giving? See, that's where this, this Scripture goes. Does the, what does the, my finances say? What story does it say regarding loving God and loving people? What does it say about my faith in God? See, that's where the Scripture takes me. That's the application, the so what, the now let's land where we live, living our faith now, following God in this day. You know, truth is, is we live in a a culture these days where giving is kind of hip, we have a, a generation, a rising number of generations that want to make a difference. Baby boomers are retiring so that they can do something significant in the world. They've earned the money, now they want to make a difference. Younger generations don't want to just earn money for any reason. They, they want to be purposeful. They want to use their money and use their gifts in a way that makes a, makes a difference in people's lives. It's beautiful to see. There's an openness in our culture to doing good things for people. And you see it all over. And you see encouragement and when when the health benefits of generosity are, are, are laid out. You know, people are saying, "Yeah, be helpful, be positive. It's good, man. It make you feel better, man. Help you with your stuff, man." So I did a search. You know, the big thing. How many of you remember this saying? Practice random acts of kindness. Remember that was really big for a little while ago. So I found this, and I thought this is actually captures it all on the internet. This Monday, spread the love. Random acts of kindness help others make you feel better too. Well, that's kind of cool. That's kind of nice. I have a problem with the fact that it's a white hand giving to a black hand. That's a little assumption. I have a problem with that. But, in general, I think we get the spirit of it, you know, practice random acts of kindness. And so we celebrate it. We think, oh, it's awesome. But notice the parameters of this act of giving. The parameters have to be, first of all, it's random, spontaneous, when you're moved emotionally. That means it's good. Secondly, it's, it's something that you do as you're wandering through life to make who feel better make yourself feel better. So you you practice this kindness so that you can spread kindness, but ultimately you want to make yourself feel better. Interesting. And while we can say, oh, uh, you know, this is kind of cool, the truth is is that this is not scriptural. This is not what, what we're talking about in Malachi. And I know many preachers will take the Malachi passage and say, well, this is, a, this is a mandate for you to give to our ministry because, you know, God promises. This is where He says, test me. Well, what He's talking about, testing, is trusting. It's not giving so I can get. No, it's, it's trusting God with my life. And He, in that living, in that place of trust, you receive blessing. See, what Malachi teaches is this, something that, that goes against our grain and goes against something that's in our culture right now. Malachi teaches this, that giving is an act of faith. It's an act of faith that's habitual. Oh, we hate that word. Habitual seems, seems so unfeeling, so cold, so sterile, so guilt-filled. No, we live and die by habits, we are the sum of our habits, the things that we do on a repeated basis. And if we're called to give our life to Christ, to lay down our life so that we might live, then that is a habit thing, a spiritual discipline. Oh, I don't like that word discipline. It sounds punitive. No, we're a about our we're, we're all about our disciplines. And what God is saying is that giving is not a random acts of kindness thing that you do when you feel like so you can get a benefit. No, God is saying giving is the way you honor me by acknowledging that I'm the owner, you're my messenger and uh, worker in this world, you're my manager, and that you need to orientate your life to making a difference with the things that I've blessed you with. That's your money. You see, what we discover in Scripture is that when you commit to giving as a faith in God habit, something that you do on a continuous, committed basis, something that you do that's not all warm and fuzzy and shiny, something that's hard, when you do that, you release the power of God in the world because that's what the promise is in Malachi. And it's hard. Trust me. I look at what we give to the church as a family, the Bacon family. I'm like, man. I got college bills that I could help my kids with. My mom is in need and overseas that I could help with. I'm driving an old car. I wouldn't mind a newer car, don't I deserve a nicer car? Uh, Stuff in my house, the the deck is, is rotting. I mean, there's stuff that I can use that money for. And I'm a child of God. I work for God. I give God my time, and I give God my talents every day. That's my business, my life, right? And then I remember this. Giving is a faith in God habit. And when I give, commit to doing it on a a repeated basis. It is a testimony of my trust in God. It's a testimony, it's a reorientation of acknowledging that God is the owner and I am His manager, and I'm called to realize that even though I'm giving this much, all the rest of it is His anyway. And because of that, then I can not be held by my money, but instead see my money in light of the purpose that God has placed in my life. Came across this uh, a while ago, and then I discovered this video. It's a testimony about the giving practices of a group of Christians in a part of the world that you don't really think too much about when it comes to Christianity. It's northwestern India, the Mizoram people. And the Mizoram people put to life this practice. They see for sure that God's blessing being released for faith in God habit. They, they have a practice. The folks aren't very, poor, aren't very rich there, wealthy, wealthy. Um, but they've committed themselves to a practice called uh, one handful of rice one handful of rice at a time and there's a, a name for it and I just want you to just listen to what they have to say about it and see just the power of God working through that. Let's just enjoy this video. There are many ways of serving
0: the Lord. Some people do great things Some people are good preachers. Some people contribute lots and lots of
1: money. But when we talk about this handful of rice, it is very humble. The service is done in the corner of the kitchen that nobody sees. But God knows, God bless.
0: Every day, simple women in the state of Mizoram in Northeast India, are spearheading a revolution that is sweeping the world of missions. Their movement, Bhuvai Tham, or a handful of rice. Bhuvai Tham is a practice where each Mizo family puts aside a handful of rice every time they cook a meal, and later, gather it and offer it to the Church. The Church in turn sells the rice and generates income to support its work. Rice has been the staple food of the people of Mizoram, the main life of the people. You are giving what is basic, essential, fundamental to your life you are sharing that with God. This concept of Bufai Tam became so popular throughout Mizoram over the years that giving was not limited to some individuals. The whole of Mizoram, rich or poor, young or old, everybody contributed to it.
1: Bufai Tam. Time to I there.
0: not It is something which my mother has taught all of us right from when we were very young and I feel like Bufay Cham is a piece of Christian service that anyone can do it.
1: So they started this in 1914 did a little research and the first sale of rice uh, they were able to get $1.50 U.S. 1914, it's more money than, than we think now, but uh, this video came from 2009-2010, and uh, the report was, at that time, the Christians in this region doing this practice, one handful of rice at a time, were able to collect $1.5 million, so they were able to support 1,800 missionaries and other local missions. I love how this statement here says, we the people, Mizo people say, these are Mizo people who are Jesus followers. As long as we have something to eat every day, we have something to give to God every day. Giving is a faith in God habit. Question is, is are you giving a handful of rice every day, or are you content with digging up the twenty-three year old twenty-three year old frozen turkey? I've really been uh, convicted I'm reading a book called Gen Z talking about the shifting in our cultural climate and uh, you know Mark Twain said go if it was if there was a calamity coming move to Cincinnati cuz everything happens 100 years later in Cincinnati I don't think that's true anymore it's happening here there's a cultural shift and it's the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not N-O-N-U-S with the habit and all that. No, nuns. That, when they ask to fill a, a questionnaire that says, tell me your religious affiliation, they say, none. In other words, they do not interested in God. They're not angry about God. They don't care about God. None. That statistic, last I read, was up to about 23% of our general population. 23%, a quarter, one in four of your neighbors say, I don't have religious affiliation. None. That gets even higher with the younger generations, 35, 40-year-olds down. That's pushing up to 30, 40%. None. And we better wake up, church, To the fact that we were called not to gather in a holy huddle to coddle the faithful so that we might feel good. No, we better realize if we wanna release the power of God, it's gonna be by faith. And faith is translated into habits of obedience, like giving, one handful at a time. One of the things that really convicted me in this book was a, a statement How well do you wear God? How well do you wear God? do my finances show my faithfulness in God? If faith is measured in my commitment in giving to being, submitting myself to God's leadership so that I might honor Him as my forgiver, what does my giving habits show? What does my financial habits show? That's the message we get from Malachi, the messenger from God to the people of God. A message I think that's landing home for us today. I'll ask uh, Rick and Mike, I believe, they're here and they're available to pray. Two of our elders are ready to pray with you in person and to uh, be here to minister to you if you have any prayer needs, questions about what's next with your faith journey. But let's stand and we'll be closed with a prayer. I'll lead us in prayer and uh, ask that you would uh, consider these things and prayer these things that you've heard today. Lord, we thank you for the time we can share and ask that you would bless us. Uh, But I know that when we ask for blessing, um, I know that we want you in our life, when it's by our own terms, help us to recognize that um, a call to blessing involves a call to also obedience and to give to you our lives, lay down our life, take up our cross and follow you. To have life, we must give up our lives in this way and The flashpoint is usually our money. It's usually our wallets. It's usually our spending plans and our earning. Help us, Lord, to recognize that you are calling us to trust in you, calling us to the habit of giving as we live out our faith so that we might see your power released, making a difference in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: You can find out more about us on the web at mtcarmelchurch.org.